Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to Podside Picnic. It's Pete. Uh, Connor is uh, sick today, so uh, we're we're doing without him. But in his place, I'm very excited to have Gary Gibson, uh, an author I'm hugely excited about. I've been reading his works for a long time. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Oh, great. Great. So um, let's see. I, I did the list of questions, so that's probably the place to, to start out with. Um, so uh, I, um, I started when I when I first started reading your work. I honestly I was in a bookstore and I walked by and saw a really interesting cover and picked up Stealing Light. And that's that's sort of what got me started with you. But one of the things I was thinking about as I was getting ready for this is like that whole shoal sequence you wrote is a very it's like a cyberpunk space opera hybrid. And then like Extinction Game and those books, I mean, they, they, they play in a multiverse, almost in like a, I, I'm trying to think of who else did that in the same way. Well, Niven did it and uh, uh, Neil Stevenson, I guess. Um, is there a type of sci-fi that you really are more into? Like, are you just trying different things? I'm, I'm just sort of interested in the breadths of styles you've shown over the last 10 years. I think I'm into pretty much everything. Um, I, I never used to think of science fiction in very granular terms. I, I know that in publishing, they do think of science fiction in very granular terms in terms of how they market it. But to me, science fiction was everything I've done and everything other people do that was called science fiction. So I never really kind of saw, um, I don't know how you would put it. Uh, I never really saw myself as doing anything but writing science fiction but whatever I wrote if it was science fiction it was still science fiction yeah actually that makes a ton of sense to me I mean Connor would be pretty excited about that because he like he has some questions about the usefulness of like those genre walls to begin with it seems like they're there to make publishers happy and make it easier to organize shelves you know Well, I think I can see things from both sides because after having been in the business, as it were, on and off since the early 2000s, on the publishing side of things, I think a lot of readers, not all readers by any means, but a significant number do think in those granular terms like they want this kind of story. And if you're known for that kind of story, they will keep coming back to you for that kind of story, which Mm -hmm. is fine if you're happy always writing that kind of story. But if you're like me and you like to try different things, it's maybe a little more more difficult and maybe you'll appeal to readers who like a variety of different approaches and 
different styles and different subject matters. Yeah, no, that I, that makes a ton of sense to me. Actually, that sort of ties in uh, when I've been trying to explain to Connor uh, like the breadth of your work and what your focuses are, and it's been sort of an interesting conversation because you 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 have tried so many things, you know, over the past decade plus. Um, if you if you were trying to introduce your work with to somebody, what would you recommend? Where should people start? I've never really come up with a, a good answer for that um, because they are they are all quite different. I, I mean, I usually just opt to say Stealing Light because that one sold the best of everything I've written by a long margin. That was quite, you know, successful, that book. And uh, I'm sure my publishers would have been pretty happy if I'd pretty much written nothing but books exactly like Stealing Light from then on. <laughs> But unfortunately, nobody actually told me you have to keep writing this. I actually used to write to my publishers at the time and say, what exactly is it you want me to do next? And they'd say, well, nothing, actually. I'd often just not get a reply back then. But in the end, I kind of figured out that that's what they wanted. What actually made me realize this was uh, my first agent, who sadly passed away some years ago, was a woman named Dorothy Lumley. And uh, she mentioned in passing in an email that she had a client who wrote, I think it was something like murder mysteries set in the world of horse training. And I thought, are you telling me that there's actually a market so granular that there's people who write murder mysteries set in the world of horse training? I mean, how can you be that specific? (laughs) Then I thought about it and I realised finally that there are actually quite a lot of writers I'd always been aware of, even if I'd not read them, who write exactly, I hate to say it, but essentially the same environment, the same characters, the same settings over and over and over again. And they do very well at it. And uh, But I hadn't really thought about it until then about why that is, you know? And but mm-hmm. but a lot, and, and then I realised that the people I was most influenced by were people who wrote lots of different kinds of things. What I hadn't thought about was whether or not their publishers wanted them to write lots of different things. And then I realised maybe it was also a function of the difference between how publishing works in the United States and in Britain, since you know I'm Scottish, therefore I'm a British writer, and. Um, let me think. I think what it is, is that people in the States, even quite successful writers, would often try different kinds of things because they were selling books on a one-by-one basis. Whereas in the UK, there was a slightly more long-term approach. I'm really not sure about that, but I seem to vaguely remember something about that or being told something like that or reading it somewhere. But I I started to realize that a lot of what I thought writing, how it worked in publishing terms, was based on assumptions I'd made. And that in reality, most people were expected to keep writing more or less the same kind of book. And I just couldn't do that. Well, I mean, uh, on a personal note, Gary, I'm very glad you didn't. I mean, I I loved the Shoal sequence. And the the Extinction Game sequence, uh, which really just started to come out, was it 2016 was the first one? 2017? Maybe 2015. Maybe actually as early as 2014, if you're talking about the initial hardback release of Extinction Game. Yeah. Possibly. 
Well, I, I mean, at, at any rate, I I loved those. I mean, I um, I so far I haven't read a book of yours that pissed me off, frankly. But the uh, the the whole the whole multiverse and the idea of of uh, I mean, I I don't know what you call them, apocalypse Boy Scouts. I mean, I was <laughs> entranced by that, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I, it, it, it was fun to write, and that's why I wrote it. And my my editor at the time at Tor UK said, "Oh, it's so different." And that, but that's again the difference between how people perceive what I'm doing and how I perceive it. I didn't think I was doing anything different. I was still writing essentially some form of hard science fiction. Therefore, it's not different. Whereas from the publishing point of view, it's not set on a spaceship. Therefore, it's very different. Ah, that's really frustrating, man. Uh, so, hey, uh, when we were talking earlier, you 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 mentioned uh, without going there uh, your influences. What what authors like? I mean, obviously, you're on your own path here. But what what authors do you really look to as 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 inspiration? Oh, good grief. I find it really hard to narrow down. Um, I used to get compared a lot to other British authors like um, Peter Hamilton and Neil Asher. But I, sure. was kind, I was kind of surprised by that comparison because I was really trying to be maybe Gregory Benford or Greg Bear and clearly, mm-hmm. <laughs> clearly not necessarily succeeding. But um, I always looked to those guys in particular because they were writing a very, almost kind of literary hard science fiction. And I was a huge fan of Greg Bear's books like um, The Fords of God and Aeon. So I would Absolutely. probably regard them as influences. And sure, definitely, I think Roger Zelazny is in there more for his other science fiction stuff. I'm not really read the fantasy. So um, Damnation Alley was in there. Also a more obscure novel called Roadmarks, he wrote, which is, oh, I love Roadmarks. Yeah, I go. love Roadmarks Beyond Reason. And um, uh, I, 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 I've always been a big fan of it. Sure, Ian Banks is in there as well. Not just the culture books, but also his uh, mainstream stuff and his non-culture stuff. Uh, again, a writer who I was influenced by, who was into variety. Although, in fairness, yes, his culture stuff was all set within the same universe. He told different kinds of story and he had the freedom to go and write completely unique stories uh, under the name without the initial. So uh, that's the kind of freedom that I, that's, I'd like to have if I could. Um, Absolutely. In terms of influences, I can't really... To be honest, I mean, like, um, that this book that's coming out uh, next year, Devil's Road, is the first time I think I've written something where I'm explicitly acknowledging influences from film and TV. Um. I know that, like, uh, I'm not alone in being influenced by maybe the movies of John Carpenter. Movies like uh, The Thing, uh, Escape from New York, and um, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, sure. And sure, and also movies like Death Race 2000 or monster movies I remember from when I was a kid. So, I mean, that stuff, I mean, it. you know how it is. All this stuff swirls around in your head and something comes out of it eventually. That is maybe your thing, whatever it might be. 
Oh yeah, no that that makes a ton of sense to me, and I mean, quite honestly, the 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 laundry list of authors that you've just gone through are we have either talked about them on the show or we're planning to. So I mean, this it's it's uh, I I hope everybody listening took notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that your your book that's coming out in in March. Are uh, are you going a traditional publishing route with that? I mean, is that an okay thing to talk about? Because sure. I'm, okay, I'm, I I've I uh, I have uh, read through some of your blog, and one of the things I've noticed is that you are um, you're you're experimenting with alternate publishing models, and you're trying to adapt yes. to what's going on. Yes, um, is any of that happening with your your latest book? Well, what it is, is I'm kind of doing a hybrid thing with Devil's Road. Uh, there is a small press publisher, a very high quality one uh, in Britain called Newcon Press. And they uh, they publish a lot of uh, limited edition novellas by a fair number of um, names that would be familiar to readers of British genre writers. Um, and uh, so I had one book out with them. And I know the guy who runs it, Ian Waits. And so I had the idea. Originally, I was just going to go. Originally, actually, if I want to go back even further. Originally, my intention was to try and get Devil's Road traditionally published. But sure. then I went, me and my agent, my current agent, went through a publisher who were interested. But I won't go into this story, but let's just say it was one of the least satisfying traditional publishing experiences I've ever had. And that made me think, I've had enough. I'm just going to self-publish this. I'll just do it myself. But then I had the idea, on the other hand, while self-publishing has some advantages, and while it's still an area of interest to me, there are still things that you can do with traditional publishing you can't with self-publishing. And that um, led me to the idea of talking to Newcon Press and... I think it's the same kind of thing that other people have done where they sell the rights to say the paperback or whatever while they retain the ebook rights. So it's something like that. Mm -hmm. So Newcon Press will be publishing a, a hardcover edition of the book and I'll be controlling all other rights uh, through paperback, ebook and audio. So it's a collaboration, you could call it, between myself and a traditional publisher. There are oh, things that's that awesome. So yeah, there are things they can do very well that I can't do, and there are things that I can do that maybe they, they can't necessarily pay their fullest attention to because I wouldn't be the only person they have to do stuff for. So this way feels like the best of both worlds. No, absolutely. We've uh, we've had a few smaller publishers on the show before, and one of the things they talk about is uh, pretty consistently is that like the self-publishing -pu model or a hybrid model is can be very successful, but the amount of work it requires for the author is is exponentially more on the back end. Is that is that your experience? Well, it depends what you mean by the back end. Do you mean in terms of like promoting it, advertising it? all that kind of thing. Exactly. Yes, yes, there's a lot of work involved. I don't mind it so much because on some way or another, I've been self-publishing since the early 90s. Um, back then, I was involved in doing small press zines, science fiction, um, comics, 
uh, all kinds of stuff, starting about 1990 through to about 1993 or 1994. And sure. uh, then I kind of um, left that alone for a while. Then I got traditionally published. And then I had another go at the self-publishing thing, but publishing other people in the early 2010s. Uh, that didn't work out so well because I had no idea what I was doing. And then I'm in the position now where I can take the time and effort to go deeper. So yes, there is a lot extra work if you're a writer, but if you're inclined to enjoy that kind of thing, you have an advantage. And I don't mind that kind of thing. So I'm quite happy to do it. That's that. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, it's the idea of, of, having a little more autonomy and control uh, over your work, I really see the appeal because I, I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of frustrated writers over the last six or eight months of this podcast. It really seems like the, uh, the traditional publishing model, what you can do and what you can't do is, is narrowing more and more. Um, you, you seem to be in sort of a unique position because like, you know, with like the small zine work and the, the small press work you've done and you've, you've, uh, you've self-published, you've worked with Tor and other traditional publishers. Well, what, what is changing? What would you say is different about the publishing industry now than say 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Because you seem to have been like, uh, you've checked all the boxes between now and then. So I think you've got a pretty good perspective about what's going on. Well, the thing is, it's one of those things where the closer you look at it, the more complicated and confusing it gets. The best I can say is that the world of publishing is basically in a state of what you call quantum indeterminacy. It's not one thing or the other and nobody really knows how it's going to work out because everything is still up in the air. Um, I don't actually feel that much of an expert on it. I pay attention to other people who seem to me to know what they're talking about with this kind of thing, especially agents. Um, uh, they have a better kind of idea of what's going on because they deal both with writers and with publishers. So um, if they talk up self-publishing or they make a point, they're usually the people I pay attention to. So to be honest with you, oh, I really don't know how it's going to work out. Um, they both have advantages, self-publishing and traditional publishing, but they also have disadvantages. And how it's ultimately going to work out, I don't know. I, I have absolutely no idea. I'd love to know. If I could see into the future, it will be fantastic. Even five years from now, I cannot guess how things will be. I think what might happen maybe is that smaller publishers will, as they always have done, become bigger publishers and have more influence and also be more used to dealing with people who have hybrid models of publishing and be more open to that, where maybe traditional publishers especially people in those industries who've been used to doing it the old way for a long time, maybe are less uh, flexible about these things. Maybe they will eventually retire and move on and the other people will come in and there will be new publishing models or a more relaxed attitude towards dealing with writers. I mean, I can see it all from every perspective. I can see why from the traditional publishing point of view, they will be worried about it and why it might also be an opportunity I can look at the self-publishing side of things and see why it can be an opportunity for some people and could work out badly for others. 
because so much about self-publishing involves skills that aren't writing. There are skills which involve you doing other things like uh, hiring people to do cover art or figuring out how to do advertising or, 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 or how to do, you know write a newsletter and communicate with people. And some people will be very good at that and some people won't. Honestly, I can't even begin to guess how things might work out eventually. I don't think anybody really does until it happens. Well, I mean, honestly, if having to face this as as your career, I think your attitude has to be the right one because it sounds like you're just you're 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 prepping for the unknown rather than than betting on a theory. And that's got to be I mean, just in terms of of survival and planning ahead, that's got to be the way it's got to be. It's like surfing a wave. You don't know if you're going to come off the board or stay on the board. All you can do is ride the wave until you reach the shore. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. Um, oh, uh, Scienceville. Uh, yes. So you you published a collection of short stories, and I remember reading it had an unusual publishing mo- model, and it was, in terms of your short story output, it was, it was fairly successful, and somehow there was a, a podcast involved. Could you talk about that? Because I, I don't, I, I sort of lost the thread. What, what happened with it and how did that work out for you? Well, about 2015, I got right back to writing some short stories uh, for the first time in a long time. I, I, I've never really written that many short stories. Uh, I had a few published in the 90s, but just a few. I mostly mm-hmm. concentrated on novels, but... I sold Scienceville to Interzone magazine and uh, and I had a couple of other stories kicking about. I sold another one to a Scottish small press called uh, Shoreline of Infinity. And after a while, I realized I had about 30,000 words of fiction that was otherwise doing nothing. And um, I thought, well, I could try and, you know, get back into the self-publishing thing. Except, like I say, the first time I tried to do it, where I was publishing other people's stuff, uh, it wasn't very successful because, as I say, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) But at that time, it was the early 2010s, and nobody else had any idea what they were doing either. But by that time, by the time I put that collection together, a lot of those people uh, had gone on to become experts in this stuff. They'd learned a lot. So I went online and I learned from them. People like, uh, there's a guy called David Gochran, an Irish writer who's very uh, much of a, I guess you would call him like a guru in self-publishing. He writes books of advice on how to do it. And uh, so I paid attention to him and to others. And uh, I mean, I'd, I'd published books by other writers who I regarded as their stuff should be out there and they sold practically nothing and I couldn't figure out why. Then I read some of these books on self-publishing and I thought, oh shit, I did everything wrong. And then I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. I'll maybe sell 50 copies, 100 copies. At least I'll get an extra couple of quid, you know, on top of what I made from short story sales for my effort. And uh, I think I sold, um, let me think about 1,200 copies so far, which is quite a bit more than I thought I would. Uh, that really surprised me. Um, and I did some extrapolation from that. Uh, basically short story collections do not sell anywhere near as many copies as a novel does. Uh, for instance, if you think you can sell 20,000 copies of a novel, 
and then you have Epica Short Stories out, then you might expect to sell two or three thousand copies of that. In other words, it's a small fraction of what you'd sell of a novel. So I thought, okay, so if, if I've sold 1,200 copies of this book, and if it's a short story collection, and if I extrapolate that to a novel, I could maybe sell quite a few more copies of a novel. And then if you sit down and figure out how much you can make per copy from a novel, assuming your calculations are correct, assuming you sell that number of copies, uh, then, you know, you could potentially do quite well out of it. I thought, okay, well, that's worth exploring. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't expect Scienceville to do as well as it did, uh, the collection. And I thought, okay, okay, that's, uh, you know, unexpected. So I, I self-published another book. I did a self-published sequel to Extinction Game and Survival Game. And uh, so on. Which are great, by the way, folks. <laughs> Thank you. And then I did, um, I, I just had Ghost Frequencies published entirely through Newcon Press. So that wasn't self-published. That was through a, a, a press. And then there's Devil's Road, which is coming up. Uh, and that's like a hybrid model. So I'm trying different things as I go along. So the thing with Scienceville was, um, uh, so yeah, it was first an in Interzone. Did it get reprinted somewhere else? I'm not sure if it did. Uh, then there was um, a few other stories in a few other places. I dug up some old stuff from the past, which wasn't too bad. Uh, I wrote some original stuff. And um, Scienceville, you mentioned the podcast. It got I, I resold it as a uh, to um, I think it's Starship Sofa podcast, who did some really amazing audio podcasts, and they did an amazing job. Of Scienceville, so I mean, like, um, if you're into podcasts and you're into audio fiction, uh, if you dig back a bit on the Starship Sofa website, you'll find the Scienceville podcast there. And uh, so, basically, yeah, it was my test bed to see how things went. I did it as cheaply as possible, but since then, I've been gradually spending more and more money to try and keep my stuff to as high quality as possible. Cool. That's, uh, I. I'm continually fascinated by this. One of the things you've mentioned, and and you're not the first to tell me this, but that short story collections don't uh, simply don't do as well as novels, and that always seems very strange to me because, like, writing programs and like colleges, all of that stuff seem to be geared towards getting writers to chunk out more and more short stories. Well, that makes so sense like, because it's a lot easier to make mistakes in a short story than it is to make a bunch of mistakes in a novel that takes an entire year or two years of your life. Uh, if you can figure out how to tell... I, I realized when I was first starting to write short stories and selling one or two, it occurred to me, okay, if I can write a short story and sell it for money, I can surely sell a novel. You know, it just seemed mm -hmm. like a logical conclusion. Um, and that's what led me to, you know, start writing novels. But I, I personally also think people should start with short stories. And if they're doing courses, they should be doing short stories because, you know, if you want to learn how to write a complete cohesive narrative, people will willingly pay for, then it's much, much more sensible to do it in 5,000 words than 95,000 words. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that, that makes sense. I mean, there's a, there's a sunk cost problem there. If you, uh, 
uh, if you're going down the wrong path and it's uh, it's it's a novel, that's that's six months a year of your life. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, and honestly, this isn't directly uh, tied to your writing necessarily, but I'm 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 very curious. Uh, uh, like your Wikipedia page talked about you living in Taiwan and then coming back yeah. to. And like, I know you're there now. What, could I ask what your connection is to Taiwan? Well, I'm married to a Taiwanese person. So, um, uh, we, that would help. That helps. <laughs> so it just made sense. Economically speaking, I, we, I spent two years from 2008 to 2010 in Taiwan. I liked it, but I wanted to get back to Scotland because I had connections to publishing there and I had a flat there. So we headed back for a few years and we ended up there for four years. And then we came back in 2015. And uh, at the moment, it's just a lot cheaper, really, to live here anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas um, if I was back in the UK just now, I'd be be really quite strapped. Um, So life's a bit more comfortable in that sense here. So it just makes sense to stick around for now. Yeah. Oh, that makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, my wife is uh, from the Philippines, and God help us all, we're both in banking. And uh, <laughs> uh, but, like, if I could do the podcast full time, you count on it being my choice. But uh, like, be doing banking in the U.S. just makes more sense right now, which is yeah. a real shame because I I like the ocean. Given a choice, like the Philippines would be the way to go. But yeah. you know, you you got to be practical. Um, anyway, um, so, uh, one of the things, I mean, I, I was excited about doing this interview with you for a couple of reasons. One is that I've been, uh, I've been a fan of your work since 2007. So, I mean, just, just reaching out and, and like having you interested in doing it was, it was a high point, but, uh, I also would like to do what little I can to promote your work. So when the time comes to publish this, is the, is could you help me find a good link to bring people to buy your stuff, that sort of thing? Because I'd really like to give our readers a chance to uh, check out the breadth of your work. No problem at all. It's actually currently up for um, pre-order on um, Amazon. Uh-huh. And uh, there will be a paperback through... Ingram Sparks, uh, there will be the Newcon Press edition, and I've got a narrator working just now on an audiobook, so that's due as well. Uh, That will come through audible.com. So I don't know if I have every link handy yet, but I can send what I have to you, yes. Awesome. Okay, fantastic. Um... Well, I think we're probably at a good point here, if that's that's all right with you. Oh, you know, I do have one more question sure. for you. Um, you, uh, uh, we, we, t- I talked about your breadth of writing and the different things you've tried over the over the course of what I've read of yours, but. One thing that you have done consistently all the way along, and you made references to this in the conversation, is that it's all been hard science fiction. More or less, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Is that just because you like it more or do you have a background? Could you talk about where that comes from? I think it just comes from that being my reading taste when I was growing up. I started like a lot of people do 
you know, reading the obvious choices like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, so I grew up very much with that kind of hard SF aesthetic in my mind. I'm not quite so locked into it as I was, but I think it still kind of informs everything I write. I've never quite written outright fantasy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I Even when I try to, I tried to with Scienceville. It was originally going to be much more surreal, but I couldn't help slinging some kind of rationale in there at the end. <laughs> I just, you know, I couldn't stop myself. It's a, it's a thing. You think, okay, no, this has to make sense. There has to be a reason for this. I must put it in. And so it just, even when I try to, it just comes out something else, you know? Like, I quite like the idea of writing some horror, but every time I think of an idea that's kind of got a supernatural element to it, again, I find myself trying to come up with an underlying science rationale. I mean, actually, you were talking about influences earlier. I mean, if you want a perfect example and someone of someone who does that kind of thing, uh, but who is also an influence, is Nigel Neal the guy who wrote Quatermass. And, uh, oh, sure. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely an influence. He was definitely an influence in ghost frequencies. No doubts about it. So I've always taken that approach. Even when I write stuff, it's a bit less hard. I still find some way to connect it back to rationality and science because that's just in my personality, I guess, you know? No, that that makes perfect sense. And I mean, I, you know, obvi- obviously I like the results. I think it's, uh, uh, it, it's one of the cool things about, uh, well, the, the extinction game, for example, is there was this feeling of, of, uh, an, unpredictable and confusing world that this guy was thrust in and he had to figure out the logic over time and i think i think your approach lends itself very well to that sort of exploration yeah yeah um yeah that's pretty much what i was trying to do with that uh just trying to keep like a rational kind of attitude towards and try and figure out how it works i mean it seems to me they're going to put people into a situation they're going to try and figure out how it works absolutely well, uh, Gary, I've I really enjoyed the time we spent uh, together today on this. Um, everybody who's who's listening, uh, below the link you clicked on for this, we're we're going to have uh, links to some of Gary's work, both uh, the pre-order for the new book and uh, existing material. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Absolutely. <laughs>